I've entitled my thoughts this morning as a continuation of our message from last week, All Things Are Possible with God. Last week our message was entitled Impossible. And for lack of a better term, wow, what a message that goes against so much of our human nature. We considered the account from Matthew 19 of the rich young ruler, a very well-to-do young man who was a rigid adherent to the Old Testament law. He had great material goods. He comes to Jesus, and he has a conversation with him in which many important and crucial theological concepts are Put on display. Just to remind you of what we considered in that study together, this man comes to Jesus and he basically asks him what good thing he needs to do to merit, to earn eternal life. That's a question that is asked each and every day. It's a question that people have in their minds as they enter into church houses on Sunday. It's something that someone might lie awake even being tormented by in the middle of the night. What do I have to do to make sure that when this world is over, I'm not suffering in torment, but I am with the Lord Jesus in glory? Isn't that a question that people consider every day? Well, as they engage with one another, Jesus immediately asks the question in response to that man's question that sets the framework, lays the groundwork for the ultimate conclusion that Jesus would have us to know from this question, which is, with men, it's impossible. But Jesus immediately responds with, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. What does that mean? It means that, and Jesus is God incarnate. He's not saying that Jesus is not good. But Jesus is telling this man that if you think somehow by your goodness you will have eternal life, you are wrong. There is none good but one that is God. From the very beginning, Jesus kicks this argument, the feet of this argument out from under itself. The only one that is good is God, and God is incarnate before this man. Now, as we'll mention today just in brief, the only goodness that we have that enables us to stand before God is the goodness that was given to us by Christ Jesus, our Savior. Christ has given us His righteousness. And so when God looks at you, He doesn't see the sinful thoughts of your mind. Even in this very present moment, as you struggle with paying attention versus thinking about what you did yesterday or what you're going to do tonight. As you look back on the past week and the times that you got angry when you shouldn't have or thought things that you shouldn't have, said things that you shouldn't have, or done things that you shouldn't have, God does not see that. He sees the life of Jesus because Christ has given you His righteousness. This man tells Jesus that he's kept the law from his youth up He asks Jesus, what good thing must I do? And Jesus effectively tells him, if it were up to you, you would have to keep the law to a jot and a tittle. You would have to be perfect. And we are all from conception, from the very moment we came into being, corrupted by sin. And so it is quite literally an impossibility. This man says, oh, I've kept all of these laws. I've done everything that the Ten Commandments tell me to do. Well, according to Jesus' understanding of that, if you were ever angry with someone without a cause, you're guilty of murder. If you ever hated someone, you're guilty of murder for no reason, hated them for no reason. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. If you've ever thought a lustful thought, you're guilty of the commandment not to commit adultery. And we suddenly find in view of Christ's understanding of the Ten Commandments, that not only are we guilty of some of them, but truthfully, we are guilty of all of them. And that makes us criminals. That makes us condemned. That makes us worthy not only of death, but also the second death, which is an everlasting stay in the lake of fire. 
This man tells Jesus, as we discussed, that he's kept all these things from his youth up. And Jesus tells him, as we read in Mark's gospel, but one thing you lack. Now, truth be told, there were many things he lacked. But Jesus goes right to the heart of that man's particular sin issue and exposes that with his word to show that this man, like me, like you, if it were up to establishing our own righteousness, he would come up eternally short. If thou will be perfect, go sell all that thou hast, give to the poor, and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. This man goes away sorrowful. As you know, Jesus observes this and says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And as you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I hope and I pray that the kingdom of God is here today. I pray that you experience Christ today. I pray that as we sang, the Holy Spirit filled you today. I pray that you've entered into the kingdom. But Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And if you're wondering, that is impossible. The disciples hear this, and this is where we concluded last week. They were exceedingly amazed, not merely amazed, but exceedingly amazed. These men had followed Jesus. They had ministered to him and to others with him. They had preached his kingdom. They would called on men and women to repent. They had cast out devils. They had healed people. At one point, one of these disciples, Peter, tells Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. These people believe in him, the real Jesus. At one point, as Jesus in John 6 proclaimed the sovereignty of God and salvation, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. As Jesus taught that, the multitudes of people who went with him walked with him no more, many of them. He looks at the twelve and he says, Will you also go away? Peter says, Thou hast the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? We're here with you. There's no one else like you. We trust that it's you that will redeem us. And yet these men stood exceedingly amazed. And they ask, who then can be saved? Jesus beheld them and said unto them, verse 26 of Matthew 19, With men it is impossible. Because we are dead in trespasses and in sins, before Christ comes into our lives, because we have a weight of guilt before God that we cannot pay, because our nature is such that there's not anything we can even do about it. With men, it is impossible. Praise God that Jesus did not end the statement there. If that were the case, we might as well go home and weep to the moment that we die. What a sad existence that would be. To know my own sinfulness, but not know of the saving grace of God. Jesus then says, but with God, all things... All things are possible. We pick back up with this concept today. With men, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Considering specifically God's method, God's way, God's act of saving sinners. Which, by the way, is all of us. Now, if I were going to spend a bit of time expressing to someone in the complete biblical picture of salvation, how it is that God saves a person, I would turn to the book of Romans chapter 8, and I would read verses 29 and 30. What do you find in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30? You find God's complete scheme of rescuing sinners from their sins. You might refer to this as the golden chain of salvation, each of these being a link in our salvation that begins before the creation of the universe, carries us through our individual lives and lands us safe and secure, changed, forever glorified, conformed to the image of God's dear Son in glory after the world is destroyed. 
And so it's a scarlet thread, if you will, that takes us from before creation to eternity or a golden chain. In verse 28, Paul mentions those who are called according to God's purpose. You have been called according to His purpose. And the word purpose is so biblically important because it implies intent, it implies ordination, that God purposed this before the world began. For whom He did foreknow, that is, God the Father foreknew you, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, before the universe was created, God knew you. The word know is a Jewish idiom for the type of love the husband has for his wife. God knew you before the world began very lovingly with an everlasting love. And He predestinated you to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words... Before the world began, God the Father set your final destiny to full conformity to the image of Christ. And so, as we get to the last phase of this, you have glorification. What is glorification? In the resurrection, you are raised with a glorified body, fully conformed to the image of Christ. You will be like Christ. No sin no suffering, no pain, no death. You will be a joint heir with Christ in the direct personal presence of God. And that will be glory for you. You will be glorified. You have been predestinated. Pre, beforehand, destinated. God set your destiny. The word here in the original language implies beyond the horizon. When this world ends, God has set your destination to full conformity to the image of Christ that He, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn among just a few? No, many brethren. An innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. I am so thankful to know that God... Now listen, He would have been just. He would have been just to save no one. He would have been just to save one or 10, or 12, or 100,000, but God has purposed to save an innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And they'll be there with Him without the loss of one because of the work of Christ. He's the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. And so we have foreknowledge, God electing you, knowing you, loving you before the world began. You have predestination, where He sets your destiny before He created the world. You have calling, which is the new birth, the effectual call. You have justification, which is Christ dying on the cross as if He lived your life and giving you His righteousness justified by the blood of the Lord. And then finally, the fifth link in the chain, you have glorification that occurs in the resurrection from the dead. If I were to spend a great deal of time talking about how salvation is a reality and the various works of God in salvation, I would spend a great deal of time in Romans chapter 8. We have God the Father purposing and covenanting to save you before the world began. You have God the Son justifying you by His blood on the cross. We have God the Spirit calling you from death and sin to life in Christ. You have the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and the salvation of sinners. But today I want to consider, as far as our study goes, what we might refer to as the vital phase of salvation. In other words, when God saves you personally and individually in your own life. In other words, that moment when you were at one second a condemned criminal, a hater of God, with no fear of God in your heart, 
No understanding of God, no seeking of God, no desiring of God, Romans chapter 3. And the next moment, the very next moment of your existence, you are a person who feels the sting of sin. You have a love for Christ in your heart, a love of God in your heart. You now realize how sinful and depraved you are by nature, and you yearn for Christ. Now, by the way, that in your life is salvation. When you go from death to life, it is literally a resurrection from the dead. You think about Lazarus. Brother Matt Jordan preached on Lazarus just a couple of weeks ago here. I enjoyed that message very much. We were recovering from an illness in our family, and so I was hiding in the uh, sound room with the mic up real loud. I could hear anything anybody wanted to say about me when I wasn't here, and I didn't get any good gossip or any, anything negative. It was kind of in a way disappointing, I guess. I at least wanted to hear people talk about how much they missed me, and nobody really did, but had the choir mic just blaring in there. But he preached a great message on Lazarus. You know, Lazarus is dead. John 11, he's dead. He's been dead four days. He stinks. His body is decomposing. It is a terrible, terrible sight. Death is something we are so separated from in our world today. We all experience it. We all have known someone who died that we loved. But when it comes to what death looks and smells like, what, what it is to behold... We're separated from that. We have such a sterile, clean world that we deliver them to the mortician who takes care of all of the bad parts of it, cleans the person up, puts them in a suit, puts makeup on their face, combs their hair. And so many times you go to a viewing and you see the person laying there in the casket and you think they look great. Sometimes they look better than they look maybe in years. We don't see what death looks like. Put them in a concrete vault and they look like that for decades. Personally, I'd rather be put back in the dirt so I can turn back to dust and just let me disappear. I guess that's not so environmentally friendly anymore. Tell you a story one time about a church. It had a, do not drink the water because they had a well, and the well house was right by the cemetery. And I'm like, I don't even want to wash my hands in that water. Anyway, prior to salvation, you and I are dead, like Lazarus. We'll turn to Ephesians 2 if you want to go ahead and turn there. Prior to salvation, you and I are dead. We're just like Lazarus, we're a corpse. And we're not a physical corpse because we're. Walking around and talking and doing things, our existence is one that is in opposition to God. But in a spiritual sense, we are very much dead. I made the remark last week that sometimes preachers depict a person who is unsaved as drowning and God's reaching down if they would only reach up and God is throwing a rope. Listen. If, again, if a person has already drowned and you throw the rope, the rope bounces off the corpse because the person is already dead. That is man prior to Christ. The rope bounces off because we're already dead. Salvation from death and trespasses and sins biblically is described quite consistently. As a resurrection from the dead. In fact, in Romans uh, or Ephesians 1, notice this, it's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? Why do we believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. We believe because the mighty power of God has raised us from the dead. In other words, my soul has been resurrected. I'm no longer a spiritual corpse because God has come into my heart. He has given me spiritual life and I am alive forever with eternal life in Christ Jesus. In the book of Romans, excuse me, in the book of John, I keep saying Romans. I've got Romans in the brain. In the book of John chapter 5, 
Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is what? Is passed from death unto life. If you hear his word and you believe, it's because you have everlasting life and at some point in the past, you have passed from death unto life. You have been resurrected. I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. That meant that it's going to happen all through the future and it's happening right now. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. How did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? He didn't need CPR. Didn't need a defibrillator. Didn't need an adrenaline shot. You know what that CPR, that adrenaline shot, and that defibrillator would do to a four-day corpse? Nothing pleasant for the person partaking in it. Jesus merely speaks. And what does Lazarus do? Comes forth. Now, the way that they wrapped them, it wasn't like a mummy where your legs are wrapped individually. You're, you're wrapped tight. It's a great mystery. How does Lazarus come out of the tomb? Well, he either hopped or rolled or he floated out of the tomb. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But he comes out of the tomb and then the men that are there with Christ loose him and let him go. There's a great picture of the gospel ministry in that example. Christ alone gives life. We loose your grave clothes and we let you go. We set you free. The truth shall make you free. But if you are a person who believes this message, you have passed from death unto life because of the voice of the Son of God. You have heard His voice. He spoke directly to your soul, live, and that soul that was dead is now alive in Him. What an amazing miracle is vital, individual, personal salvation in your life. This is the only phase of salvation that is distinct to each individual heir of promise. You're all elected at the same time before the foundation of the world. There was no time. You can't describe eternity without using terms that are borrowed from linear time. So when we say there was a one time when God chose you, we understand that God, before the world began, before time was purposed to save you. But you were all there collectively in the mind of God and the covenant of grace. We're there together. On the cross, as Jesus suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, we were all there represented on the tree. And as he laid down his life, as he gave up the ghost, as he shed his blood for us, in that moment, every single one of you were justified at the same exact time. At the resurrection, when you're glorified, you have the dead that are raised. They're raised with glorified bodies. We which are alive and remain shall be changed, and then we will join them in the air. You have the glorification of God's people all at the same time. But the new birth is individual. The new birth happens not only at different times, but it happens at different times in each individual sinner's life. You've got a man like John the Baptist who, even before he was born into this world, He's John the Baptist in his mother's womb. His name was John. The Holy Spirit overshadows him. He is sanctified from the womb. And as the mother of Christ enters into John's mother's presence, John leaps for joy because he was born again as an unborn infant. He was alive in Christ. By faith he leapt in his mother's womb. But then you have others like Saul of Tarsus. When was that man born again? Well, he was a Christ-hater. He was a persecutor of the brethren. He sought genocide against Christians in Judea. And there he is, this proud Pharisee walking on the road to Damascus. And suddenly a light shines round about him brighter than the noonday sun. And that man hit his face. The Lord Jesus speaks from heaven. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul of Tarsus says, Who art thou, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. 
And then he says, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? That man was quickened on the road to Damascus. He wasn't born again as a baby like John the Baptist. He was a grown man with power. Power to do terrible things. You have the thief on the cross. One minute reviling Christ. The next moment saying, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He rebukes the other dying thief. We're justly condemned, but this man is innocent. What happened to the dying thief? God's grace changed him. One moment he's reviling him, the next minute he's praising him. God's grace reaches his elect even in their dying moments. You've got a baby, a powerful man in the prime of life, and a man being executed justly for his crimes. It's different and it's distinct and it's individual to each and every one of us. But God will save each and every one of his children. Because God cannot lie. He has sworn and will not repent. He covenanted within Himself Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of the world to save you, and you will be saved. There's a lot of passages in this book that teach about our destruction if we live in a foolish way. But we understand that all of those things have to do with life in this world. The child of God is secure when they leave this place and enter into the next world with Christ. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. So far today, I don't think any of that has been on my outline. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read in specific verses 8 through 10, and that's going to be the passage that we focus on as our main study passage for today. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, after reading that, let's look at the context. The context of this passage is clearly the new birth. So whatever phase of salvation that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 relates to the new birth. Context is the new birth. How do you know that? Verse 1 of chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Quickening from death in trespasses and in sins is the new birth. The word quicken, the word there, the root of that is quick. When we read quick in 2021 English, we mean fast. Like he, he's got a red Corvette. That's a quick car. Or that guy is a... Uh, sprinter on the track team. He can run pretty quick. Some of us have quick cars because we can't run pretty quick. If I'm running, something's chasing me. It may be a wasp, it may be a bear, it may be a sister Rachel, but if I'm running, something's chasing me. I'm not running. I'm not running. I'm not quick. I used to be, not anymore. Quick in Scripture doesn't mean fast. It means alive. And you, has He quickened, has He brought to life who were dead. I heard an explanation of this years ago that tried to say, well, hath he quickens in italics, and that's not really there in the original language. So when they translated that, they kind of put that in, and it was a mistake. He's not really talking about the new birth. If I ever hear a preacher begin to correct this translation of the Bible, whatever he says after that, I'm not going to pay any attention to. Put that in your mind and save that for later. Yes, hath he quickened is in italics, meaning that it has been added to make the sentence complete. The KJV translators are so honest in their translation that they tell you by the use of italics when they have to add something to make a complete sentence. But the context is undeniably the new birth. How do you know? Again, verses 19 and 20. The working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead is 
the power by which we believe. The resurrecting power of God has raised your dead soul to life in Christ. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. So yes, hath he quickened is added in verse 1, but look at verse 5, look at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It is undeniable that the context is the new birth. And so whatever saving that we have under consideration here is the saving that is in the new birth. Simple as that. Look at verse 10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That invokes concepts such as being a new creature in Christ Jesus, which is someone who is what? Born again. The context is undeniably the new birth. Furthering the context, you hath He quickened who were dead. You're no longer dead in trespasses and in sins. Why? Because He quickened you. Before Christ came into your life, you and I, again, were like Lazarus, but not in a physical sense. In a spiritual sense, we were dead in sins. Being a spiritual corpse, what did we do? We walked according to the course of this world in times past, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's that wicked one. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Prior to the new birth, we were dead in sins, trespasses and in sins. We did exactly whatever we wanted to do in our flesh and our wicked mind. We did whatever Satan wanted us to do. We did exactly as the Children of disobedience, which doesn't mean disobedient children, but children of disobedience. There's a difference in a disobedient child and a child of disobedience. A disobedient child is a child of God that's disobedient. And that's all of us from time to time. A child of disobedience is saying the same thing as a child of Satan or a son of Belial. That's the Old Testament way of saying you're of your father the devil, you're a son of Belial. Belial is a, another word for Satan. We were as children of disobedience. We acted and behaved exactly as the non-elect. Among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle. We all had our lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I remind you of the fruit, or the lust rather, of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, you can just read those. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. That was our only lifestyle prior to grace. That is the only nature we had. That was all of our being in completeness. That's terrible, right? It's you and that's me before quickening. What a dreadful thought is that. You can't know how sweet salvation is until you know how terrible depravity was. Understanding... How bad we were, how dead we were, how we were by nature the children of wrath. Oh, praise God for the sweet message of grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. By nature, means that just as the oak tree in the churchyard makes acorns and it produces the same leaves over and over, by nature, we were naturally the children of wrath. We were just as the wicked. We often say, except for the grace of God, there go I. And sometimes that, that almost becomes a cliche in our vocabulary, and we say it almost to pay lip service, almost braggingly at times, of the way that we were before Christ, but we really mean that. Except for the grace of God, there go I. 
We love to look at the sins of other people in the world and think how terrible it is, and it is terrible, and how it's celebrated, especially months like this, and it is terrible that it's celebrated in months like this. But we also have to understand, if not for God's grace, I would be no different. You would be no different. It might not be that sin, but it would be another one. It would be just as condemning. It would be just as deplorable to God, except for the grace of God. Quite literally, friends, there go I, and there go you. We all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy. Now, we love to use terms like mercy and love and grace. Mercy is a term that means we don't get what we do deserve. Grace is a term that means we get what we don't deserve. So in God, not only do we have grace, but we also have mercy. We have grace. We have unmerited favor. God blessing us with things we don't deserve. But we also find his rich mercy, God sparing you and sparing me from what we do deserve. And by the way, somebody might think, I just want what's coming to me. Isn't that the American way? You know, I'm a self-made man. I want what I'm entitled to. It didn't used to be that way. It used to. No matter what political party was in power, you'd hear things like, that's not what... Your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And this day, it's all give me and give me now. Give me a lot. I want it. I deserve it. So many people in this country would say, I just want what's coming to me. And the last thing that Ben Winslet wants is what's coming to him. Because if I got what was coming to me, I would be just as those in Revelation 20 that are judged according to their works and cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever for their sinfulness. I don't get what's coming to me. I get what Jesus deserved according to his life here, which is why you and I in Romans 8 are referred to as joint heirs with Christ. With men it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and has raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come... Now, we are in the last age here in this world, so when he says in the ages to come, he might have reference to the various phases of human history from that time forward, but I think Paul's focus is on something much more further away. The ages of eternity, a day without end, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now let's look in specific at verses 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We want to take this a little bit out of order. First of all, we notice that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Look at this last phrase, lest any man should boast. Human beings are natural boasters. In fact, we are so, what would be the word there? Is braggadocious a word? Braggardly, is that a word? We are such boasters that if we don't get the compliments we think we deserve, we will fish for them. What do you think about that? Now listen, I play trumpet, high trumpet in a swing band. I know all about doing things to show off to get attention. Get on social media, spend 10 minutes there. Proverbs warns us to let another man praise thee and not thine own lips. We are natural braggarts. We are boasters. Being a boaster is often listed in depraved acts. If salvation were something that I earned, when I got to glory, I would be able to boast. Salvation is schemed and purposed in such a way 
that boasting is excluded. That comes from Romans chapter 2. Boasting is excluded. Now we brag, we do it in normal settings, we do it in our daily lives. How might this manifest itself in a religious setting? Well, first of all, a man may trust in his own righteousness. He thinks he's secure in the things that he's done. He's kept the law in his mind to a jot and a tittle from his youth up like the rich young ruler. That was his problem. That was his issue. And Christ tears it down. He goes away sorrowful. And the apostles ask, who then can be saved? With men it's impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. It might manifest itself in trusting in your own righteousness. If not for salvation... For your own reputation and justification in this world. I'm doing all right. I'm better than other people. Let me tell you, you're not better than other people. Your only goodness is the goodness of Jesus. We're all beggars. And Christ is our great Savior. In American Christianity, it comes in sometimes in context such as this. How many crowns or how many jewels are you going to have in your crown in glory? I've got to go do some more good work, so I've got more crowns than you. That guy over there, he just shows up on Sunday, doesn't really do a whole lot, may not even be here every Sunday. Well, he's not going to have as many crown or stars in his crown as me. Oh, my crown's going to be so big, I'm going to have to wear a neck brace to hold my head up. And there are songs that talk about jewels in your crown in glory. Do you know what the Bible says we do with our crowns in glory? We cast them at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus is worthy. If salvation were by works, we'd have room to boast. But whatever way God has ordained salvation in this world, it is in such a way that God alone gets the glory and that God alone can boast. We have nothing to boast of in our salvation. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I may have been a late teen, hearing a sermon by Elder Lonnie Mazingo Jr. from this text at Bethlehem Primitive Baptist Church in their old sanctuary that they've converted into a lunchroom. No longer even a the place where they worship anymore. And he was just hammering on this point. If I got to heaven and heaven was because of something I'd done, I'd walk around thumbing my lapels for eternity and you would too. That's what we would do. But salvation is in such a way that no man can boast. Not of works lest any man should boast. If it were of works, men would boast. That is exactly the sin of Phariseeism. In the biblical scheme of salvation, God alone gets the glory in heaven. God alone should get the glory in our lives. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's found in numerous catechisms throughout Christian history. The chief end of man. What is the meaning of life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. With men it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. Verse 8, for by grace are ye saved. We find this in verse 5, saved by grace. We're going to define what it means through faith in a minute, but I want to hammer the point momentarily, or briefly I should say, that salvation being not of works, lest any man should boast, is by grace, and grace by definition is God's unmerited favor. In the book of Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, we read an interesting statement by Paul. He's reasoning here using the definitions of the word grace and the word works. If by grace, if anything is of grace, specifically here he has reference to the election of grace, but if by grace it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. If salvation is by grace... There is nothing that you add to it or it ceases to be grace. Because by definition, grace is unmerited. If salvation is by works, it cannot be any by grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, you have in this passage revealed very clearly what we refer to as a mutually exclusive concepts. They are mutually exclusive. In other words... They repel one another. They exclude one another mutually. If it is by grace, it is not of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. If it is by works, it is not grace, otherwise work is no more work. 
Salvation is by what, Paul says? It's by grace. Now, over and over and over in the New Testament, we find these statements that we are saved by His grace. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared. That we have been saved, regenerated, washed by the Holy Spirit and regenerated by His grace. Titus chapter 3. Over and over and over we have expressions of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Two-thirds of my page is about this point. And uh, five-sixths of my time has been spent through faith. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What does this expression through faith mean? How is it connected to our new birth experience? Because this context is not a positional context. It's not a foreordination or predestination context. It is a vital salvation context. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. First thing that we learn is whatever he means here, it is not of yourselves. So if my understanding of this passage is I just need to somehow as a dead man believe, and by believing I can be saved, I've misunderstood the point to begin with because it's what? Not of yourselves. That tells us that whatever faith is, which we're going to define in a minute, I wish I had about 30 more minutes, whatever this is, it's not something that is of you. We'll see very clearly in a minute, it is not of you. Not only is it not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What is faith? The simplest definition is that it's a grace that God gives you when he quickens you. And as I was a little boy, I grew up hearing sermons on this passage by bedrock powerhouse ministers among our people. I heard this passage quoted more than probably any other passage. And they would always get to this point point. they would say that God gives you faith when He saves you. God gives you faith when He saves you. And it is not of yourselves. It is not of works. It is a gift that God has given you. I remember so many good men of God teaching it and saying that from my youth up until... my college years. It was very formulative for me. That's a simple definition. It's a grace that God gives you when He quickens you, but there's so much more to say about faith. I'm going to save the biblical definition of it for a moment. One definition that I've used for this word faith here and elsewhere, what is faith? It's very special. You might write it down. The knowledge of God that is by God. Faith is the knowledge of God that is by God. Now, where do you get that, preacher? Hebrews chapter 8. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. God teaches His people to know Him. And that is the vital relationship with Him. That is faith in your heart. The intimate heart knowledge of God that caused an unborn baby to leap for joy when Jesus enters the room. The heart knowledge of God. The Hebrews 8 knowledge of God. A knowledge of God that is by God in your heart. Well, one definition of faith comes from the book of Colossians, and I have read this in Old Baptist writings. I mean the writings of James Oliphant. I mean the writings of John Leland, the man who was instrumental in the very first amendment to the United States Constitution, a man that challenged the powers that be to include religious liberty in the Bill of Rights. Faith in you is Christ in you. 
the hope of glory. Faith in you is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Colossians 1.27. As you read the, these older writings, as they began to talk about faith, and they explained it and defined it and expressed it, they would often say that faith in you is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment and, and let your mind run through the honor roll of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, Hebrews 11 is the honor roll of faith. The just shall live by faith. That is to say, in our daily lives, we live by faith in our own personal lives. We don't walk by sight, but we walk by faith. Through faith, we understand that the worlds are framed by the word of God. Now, supplement the definition, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Through Christ in you, the hope of glory, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. How do you understand creation, Christ in you? Look at verse 5 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Have you ever sat down and tried to believe so hard that you got to leave this world? Translated directly into God's personal presence? By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. By Christ in Enoch, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. No wonder verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Without Christ in you, it is impossible for you to please God. I'm going to tell you what, this definition of faith is explosive in your understanding of passages such as Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah being warned of God. By Christ in Noah, Noah being warned of God prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By Christ in Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Through Christ in Sarah, through faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. Through Christ in Sarah, Sarah received strength to conceive seed. We are to do everything that we do as disciples of Christ. By what? By faith. And as Paul wrote in the book of Philippians chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ in me. There's so much more to faith than people understand. By grace are you saved through faith. That is, through Christ in you the hope of glory. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. You see how beautifully that flows together. Actions which are attributed to faith in Scripture are undeniably by Christ in us. The hymn goes here, in the power of Christ I stand. Continuing, he said, well, you have asserted that faith in you is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and I do not stand alone in that. That is an ancient definition our writers and our preachers used. Show me a verse that plainly equates Christ in you to faith in you. I'm glad you asked. Galatians 2.20. For I am crucified with Christ... Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. How are you alive in Christ? Because Christ liveth in you, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Faith in you is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Faith in is Christ living in you. This is why it's the faith of the Son of God. It's interesting, of in the Greek language. If you read faith of or grace of, sons of, it's the genitive sense. In the Greek language, they don't have possessive the way that we have it. If I say Ben's car, it means that it's a car belonging to Ben. But they don't have that. In the Greek language. And so rather than saying Ben's car or Ben's house or Ben's wife or Ben's children, they would say the car of Ben, the house of Ben, the children of Ben, the 
wife of Ben, etc. And we refer to this as the genitive sense. Genitive, the root there being the same for Genesis and family and several, several other words in the English and originally in the Greek language. The genitive sense is interesting. It can be possessive. In other words, the children of Ben, they belong to me, but it can also imply the source. In other words, they are the children of Ben. They came from Ben, the faith of the Son of God. It is in you because it is of him in you. He has authored it and finished it in your heart. Where do you get that? Hebrews 12, 2. Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. This and Christology are my two favorite subjects in the Bible to preach. And I could spend another hour talking about it. You wouldn't enjoy that? I would. Two-hour sermons are like, barring another preacher's joke, two-hour sermons are like smoking a cigar. The only person that enjoys it is the one doing it. You probably wouldn't enjoy that. I would. This word gift is interesting. It's actually the word doros or doron. In this case, it's doros, but it's doron. I think it's actually dorov in this passage. But it's not an everyday word for gift. In other words, I gave my wife a gift for Christmas, birthday, anniversary. It's actually a word that's used for religious offerings. When you brought money to the temple, you know what it was? It was a doron. When you offered an animal upon the altar, do you know what it was? It was a doron. It is the gift of God. I find that significant that he uses a word that every first century Jewish Christian would have understood to be a religious offering to express faith being a gift and grace being a gift, salvation being a gift. It is literally something that God offers to God. It is the gift of God. I've got three pages of verses that I was going to read where that's depicted. If you want to read them, I printed them out, but I don't have time. In other words, this is something that God begets in you as an offering to himself, you might say. Bringing this quickly to a close, faith is, defining it from another passage, the heart's cry of Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying Abba, Father. What cries Abba, Father in your heart? The spirit of his son. Faith is that Abba cry of your heart to God that is of Him in you. We cry, Abba, Father, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, because we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We cry it with our mouths because the Holy Spirit is in our heart crying it. No wonder then, faith is called in Hebrews 11.1, 1, an evidence of things not seen. The substance, substance, foundation of things hoped for. No wonder it is called a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And it is said in the book of Colossians to be of the operation of God in your heart. Christ is the author and finisher of it. We are saved by Christ in us, the hope of glory. Salvation with men is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Salvation is of the Lord. By grace, ye are saved as his workmanship a new creature in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Lord, these are 
These are deep, deep subjects that we have peered into today, and we see as through a glass darkly, but Lord, we know through these so many passages that you have come into our hearts, crying out unto yourself. We know that Christ is in us and we live through Christ who lives in us by the faith of him in us. And we know, Father, that we know you and we love you because you have taught us to, and it's not of ourselves. It's not something that we chose to do or decided to do. But, Lord, we are literally products of your resurrecting grace. Oh, Lord, when we think about this, it is too much for us to know. But we rejoice in it. We bask in it. We celebrate it. It is sweet to our ears to hear. And as we bring this to a close, Father, we say all glory be to you, to your Son, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to your own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We pray in his name and we say, Amen.